the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast Podcast. It's Wednesday, August 9th, 2023, and this is the Steak for Breakfast Podcast 2024 Presidential Primary Series. An exclusive one-on-one interview with GOP candidate and businessman Perry Johnson. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. It's available across every downloadable podcasting platform. Find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Roan. Really excited to be sitting down today for the first in our 2024 presidential primary series, a special one-on-one interview with Republican candidate Perry Johnson. So without further ado, let's take it over to the Wolverine State and change the way you consume your interviews. Smokey, this is not Nam, this is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! And joining us today, and which will be the first of our presidential primary series, candidates coming in here on Steak for Breakfast, he's an entrepreneur and businessman from the great state of Michigan. Really excited to sit down with Perry Johnson for the first time. Perry, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Man, it's uh, been a kind of a whirlwind tour for you. You've been all over the place. You know, a lot of our listenership, uh, who we've teased the podcast out to, you, you know, is familiar with your spots here on Newsmax that you do often and uh, have seen you at some of the events, obviously CPAC and the Turning Point event that was just recent here. You did really well in both of the straw polls there. And uh, you have some big news for our listenership that kind of broke late Friday. We're here at Monday on the West Coast, and uh, it appears that you've passed the 40,000 individual donor threshold to get on the debate stage here coming later in August. Very exciting, and congratulations. Welcome to the show, Perry. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think we're at about 43,000 now. In fact, I'm going to continue to go to get over 50, because for the second debate, you need 50,000. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the way these campaigns are and how many moving parts, if you don't keep rolling, you'll get swallowed up by them. So it's good to see that you guys have passed that threshold for the first debate. We're looking forward to having you on the debate stage, as you've been well-received at a lot of these conservative events, which I think is a lot in into our listenership who's going to be probably here in Perry for the first time today. It seems when you get to know him and meet him and hear his message, it really resonates, especially with the young voters and the strong conservative who show up at some of the events where he did so well in the straw poll. So before we get into some of the questions, Perry, why don't you tell a little bit of our listenership about, you know, where you are, where you come from, and what went into the equation that, you know, finally said, this is it, it's time, I'm going to run for president of the United States. Well, I grew up in a small town, Dalton, Illinois. It's about 20 miles south of Chicago. My dad was a pilot in World War II, and my mom was a nurse in the Army WAX. They met at a New Year's Eve party, which was obviously a big break for me. (laughs) And uh, they love this country. And from the beginning of time, they told me that in America, anything is possible. It's up to you. And I believe that. Now, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but I worked in the steel mill to get through undergraduate school. And in grad school, it was a little tougher. I was getting eviction notices on pretty much a regular basis, but I did get through. And I landed a job in the auto industry in the early eighties. It was around, I think my first job was around 1979, 1980 in the auto industry. And they were in serious trouble. 
There were times very typical to these times because the interest rates were through the roof. I think the primary of interest got as high as 21%. But the Japanese had come in with tremendous quality. And they were able to produce a car for dramatically less money that was substantially better than ours. And I thought I knew how to solve the problem. Because back then in the auto industry, they used to have teams of people at the end of the line that would inspect the product. If the product was not any good, they would either rework it or they would throw it out. And I knew that wasn't going to work. My background was mathematics, and I thought I knew how to solve the problem. So I left Fort Warner and started my first company. And I introduced statistical process control. And the line workers actually constructed the moving average chart themselves. And they looked at the variation. I knew the key to the problem was to cut out the variation in the process. And so we started in the beginning and systematically reduced variation. And the irony is, in about four or five years, we didn't need these inspectors anymore because we didn't have any scrap. And we had the best quality in the world. I said to myself, well, why don't we have a standard for quality? Let's face it, we have a standard for everything else. We have a standard for the cups we have, a standard for tablecloths. We have books. Everything has a standard. So when you go and buy something, you already have a standard that's already set out. That standard is a national standard or an international standard. And I said, well, we're going to have a standard for quality. And I wrote a book, ISO 9000, The Quality Standard. It took off like hotcakes. And they translated it into Spanish, Japanese, even Hungarian. And now Perry Johnson Registrars and Perry Johnson Laboratory Accreditation do business in 61 countries around the world. And I've spent the last 35 years bringing quality and efficiency to companies. And now it's about time for me to bring quality and efficiency to the federal government. And I'm going to ask you, do you really think that the federal government has quality and efficiency now? I think that the federal government lacks both quality and working in an efficient manner now, as I think a lot of our listenership does as well. And I think the uh, overwhelming majority of the potential electorate probably does included. So, listen, you became someone that brought efficiency to fields that relied solely on just old models, uh, an overabundance of manpower, not getting things done ahead of schedule and under budget, and you were able to reshape these businesses and, and create a plan that you're looking now to apply to the biggest corporate entity on the planet, the United States federal government, which I think has been one of the driving pitches right now as you've gotten your uh, presidential campaign kicked off. In fact, I wrote a book on exactly what to do. Because it's kind of ridiculous to run for president and not have a plan. Now, I happen to be, ironically, the only person in this race that actually has a plan. But I wrote a book, Two Cents to Save America. And I talk about the 10 steps that are necessary for us to accomplish our goal. Let's just start with the very basic concept of the economy itself. Right now, the federal government has a budget every year, and everybody goes out of their way to make sure that every penny in that budget is spent. In fact, they start in April to make sure that they are totally broke by the end of September. And that way they get more money the next year. Now, what could be a more stupid way to run any organization? Imagine if you had a company and operated like the government 
and you have a controller or an accountant and you say, look, I want to make sure we're broke at the end of every year. You do that, pretty soon you have no company. Well, right now we are literally $33 trillion in debt. In my book, I say 32, but we're now up to 33. And what that is, is $610 a month in interest that each family has to pay because of government debt. Now, it was fine when the government was borrowing money at literally 0.168%. The government said, oh, well, the cost for borrowing money isn't much. They were ignoring the fact that they were hopelessly in debt, but they said they all had to do was pay the interest. Well, the interest at 0.168%, even on $33 trillion, is a rounding error. It's $35, $40 billion, right? But they are now borrowing money at 27 times that number. So what happens is that our current rate of interest is around four and a half. I say that because you have short-term interest that could be at 4.8. You have long-term interest that could be a little over four. And in the end, we're spending about four and a half percent. So we just wrote a check for $900 billion in interest. Now, that is the first time in history that we actually spent more on interest than we did on defense. And then the government puts everybody in a precarious position. Clearly, we cannot continue to have Social Security and Medicare the way it is if the government continues to spend like this. In fact, we've threatened our whole way of life. When Ross Perot talked about the fact that we have a debt crisis in 1992, he had no idea that one day it would actually reach this point where we are 130% of gross domestic product. Right. And that is nuts because every single major power in the history of the world has always failed because of the economy. Rome ruled the world for a thousand years until finally they couldn't pay their troops. Let's face it, the sun never set on the English empire. So when they had the slogan, the sun never sets on the British empire, they were powerful for so many years until finally they went broke during World War II. And then you have the Soviet Union. The USSR was a mega country. They were our biggest fear at one point because they had a powerful economy. But then they couldn't keep up with the arms race and the wall came down. So right now, our biggest fear is actually China. And in 1998, the Chinese economy was $1 trillion and $77 billion, compared to our almost $8 trillion. So we were, what, seven times, seven and a half times the size of the Chinese economy back in 1998? And today, they are at $20 trillion, we are at $25 trillion. So we are only 25% bigger. And they have a population of almost 1.5 billion people, they're growing at a faster rate than we are. And we have to be very concerned because right now we don't have enough money and we're borrowing from China. We're actually sending them almost $75 million a day in interest. And I think it's a pretty sad situation when the United States has reached a point where it can't even fund itself and it has to borrow from China. That to me is a very serious situation. And I'm very concerned about the country in general because I love this country. 
And I tell my kids, we are the greatest country the world has ever known. We are the most upwardly mobile society in the history of all humanity. And I need to make sure that we keep it that way. So bottom line is, we have to follow my plan. Let's take a look at some of the things that we do that are so ridiculous. I mentioned the fact that we spend every penny that we have. I say we freeze the budget and we cut two cents out of every dollar of discretionary spending. That way, as our economy expands and we have 2% inflation, we are at a point where we will be balancing the budget. The only reason we even have all this inflation is because the government decided to spend all that money. They increased the money supply by 40%. Remember Friedman used to have license plates? He's the professor of economics at the University of Chicago. He had license plates that said, inflation equals the money supply times velocity. Well, we increased that money supply by 40%. By the way, I'm not blaming the Democrats or Republicans. I'm blaming both of them because they're both guilty of spending too much money. It's not like it used to be where you could say the Democrats are the big spenders. Heck, the Republicans spent more money than anybody did in the history of all the world. We went from $20 trillion in debt to $28 trillion in debt under President Trump. And then Biden went in there and he wanted to see if he could set further records. <laughs> and now, even though they said that they had to increase these budgets because of the fact we had COVID, did they bother decreasing them? No. We had Congress acquiesce to a budget that is literally increasing our debt by what? One and a half percent a year over the period of the next 10 years? We're going to end up $50 trillion in debt the way it's going. And this is complete nonsense. It has to stop. Now let's take a look at the kinds of things that we did that are totally stupid. When Biden got into office, he decided that he was not going to allow any drilling for oil on federal lands. So we had to actually take him to court because that actually is against the law. And he then had to agree that he was going to allow some drilling on federal lands. But the amount of drilling that's taking place now is so little that you have to go back to the days of Truman to get to that point. Well, they claim they're doing that for the environment when in reality, they're hurting the environment. We had to actually spend $61 billion buying oil from Russia to help fund that Ukraine war. And when Russia goes and extracts oil and refines oil, they damage the environment dramatically more than we do. There is no place in the world that does a better job of refining or extracting oil than the United States. Let's make, let's take it. When they take that and they turn it into natural gas, the amount of methane that goes into the air when Russia does it is five times what goes into the air when we do it. And when we don't produce as much oil as possible in this country, we are hurting the earth because we are putting much more carbon and so many more negative elements into the air than any other country in the world. And think about what would happen if we actually did produce all this oil. Gas would now be $1.75. In some places, they're spending anywhere from three and a half to $4 and a quarter. It's absurd. Then what else do we do? Well, in Michigan here, we decide we're going to collaborate with the Communist Party, and we go to a company that's connected with the Communist Party, and we ask them to build a couple of battery factories here. 
Now, to do this, we're going to give them $4 billion. Now, when we go and we build these battery factories, or when we buy electric cars right now, we're buying batteries from China. China has the technology to do it, but of course, other people do too. But we don't go to our allies. No, we go to China. And we also incentivize people to buy these electric cars by giving them $7,500 billion in tax credits. I don't even think Elon Musk thinks that makes sense. And let's face it, he is the genius that has built perhaps the most spectacular electric car right now. And yet, he doesn't even think it makes sense that we should have Americans incentivize people to buy the electric car, even though it's helping his company. Bottom line on this thing is that when we buy the batteries, we have batteries that cost somewhere between twenty dollars and $25,000. So that money has been going to China. And in Michigan, when you incentivize a Chinese-connected company with a, a party that is a company connected with the Communist Party to build batteries, this is not in the best interest of our country. Now, in addition to that, we gave in Ford Motor Company an amazing loan of $9 billion at 2%. Heck, considering that you have to pay 7, 7 to 7.3% when you buy a home now, it's like the steal of a lifetime. So we are actually going out of our way to see what we can do to help out China. And they are our biggest fear. What happens in China? Well, when I first went into China, I had to give 51% of my company to a Chinese citizen. It took me six years to finally get that guy out, and he contributed nothing. Roughly 90 days after I got him out, the Chinese government came in to my company, seized all my computers, froze my bank account, and it took me 90 days to get moving again. And believe me, I did not want to be in China. The only reason I went there is that we are the largest registrar in the United States, and we're in a position where they want to have one registrar. So we have no choice. We have to be there because it's required. But there is no place where it is more brutal to do business than in China. And I don't think we should go out of our way to see what we can do to help out China. I think a lot of things we do are particularly nutty. Let's take uh, the Ukraine. We sent $113 billion over to the Ukraine when we're going broke here. Instead of spending our time trying to get Europe involved so that we have a cooperative effort, we don't. We just decide we're going to send all this money over. But I say before we send the money over, shouldn't we have a plan on what we want to accomplish? Shouldn't there be an objective? I don't even know what the objective is. Are we just sending the money over so that we endlessly fight like we did in Afghanistan? What is the purpose? So let's at least have objectives and let's align that with our allies over there in Europe. After all, they're right next to the Ukraine. So when I take a look at some of the stuff that we do, I say, this is really nutty. It's about time that we say America is a great country. Let's keep America strong. And let's make sure that we have an economy that can thrive. Because without a thriving economy, one day they're going to be coming to you and saying, we're going to have to cut back on Social Security. We're going to have to cut back on Medicare. We're going to have to cut back on defense. And right now, it's particularly important that we keep our defense strong. Because recognize that with AI kind of entering the picture, technology is going to be the most important thing for us to be successful in defense. 
we cannot be behind the eight ball on that one. And it's very important that we give everybody an opportunity to do well and to succeed. And the only way that's going to happen is if we keep the economy strong and we keep our defense strong. Those are some great points you made, Perry. You tackled the top three issues that are most concerning to American, obviously, foreign policy. Definitely the economy at number one. I saw some polls out this weekend. It was like the high 30s. America, you know, most Americans feel the economy is going in the right direction. Uh, just about over, a little over 70% of all Americans are using 100% of their paycheck just for food, fuel, and shelter. I mean, we're, we're pretty beat up the last couple of years. And then when you talk about energy, I mean, I'm out here in Southern California. I paid 519 for regular yesterday, um, <laughs> which is almost double the national average. So, yeah, we're feeling it. And, and some of the th- ways that you want to kind of, you know, resurface the government and, and streamline it into something that's more efficient and that spends a whole lot less money that goes into your two cents plan is something that I think is very fresh and, and pleasing to the ears of young voters. Um, I do want to stay in uh, foreign policy real quick, but before we do that, We're going to be right back with 2024 presidential GOP candidate Perry Johnson. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors. I think it's time we had a conversation about a good night's sleep. Pillow King of Minnesota, Mike Lindell, and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family has been cranking out savings down at MyPillow for over 20 years. And for the first time in 20 years, they've changed the longstanding MyPillow and now have the MyPillow version 2.0. You enter promo code STAKE at checkout, you're going to get buy one, get one free. In addition to that, they've got great savings on all things like MyPillow dog beds, the Air Lindell version 1 and 2, my slippers, and Giza Dream Everything. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched My Coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. When you need a promo code stake here, you're going to get 25% off your order or 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyPillow.com forward slash stake for anything sleep related. If you want the coffee, MyStore.com forward slash stake, or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative, 1-800-658-8045. All right, and we're back here in the first of our 2024 GOP primary interview series, and we're here with Michigan entrepreneur, businessman Perry Johnson. Perry, I do want to stay in foreign policy. You talked about the war in Ukraine. You talked about urging some of our NATO allies and European countries whose backyard this you know, conflict is happening in, getting involved. What is a solution, maybe one item that you think hasn't been addressed yet, that's going to get these two sides to the negotiation table and getting the hostilities to come to a stop? I think everything has to start with a plan. In other words, if you start just deciding to have a a basic fight, you ought to at least figure out what the end objective is as a result of this fight. I mean, what do you hope to accomplish? So I think we start out by saying, okay, what is our objective? What do we really want? I think you have to also factor in what precipitated this particular action. Did they go in because they were concerned that we were going to suddenly have Ukraine part of NATO and they didn't want a member of NATO so close to them? Is that what Russia did? What else? What started this whole thing? Did did this start because they said, well, we have Biden in office and he's not going to do anything? What started all this? I don't know what started all this. I think we need to really look at what is our goal, because we have to start with a goal. But by the way, there are other issues. This is the first time in history where we have more illegal immigration than legal immigration. Correct. And I think that we can at least finish the wall. 
Right now, illegal immigration costs about $150.7 billion. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have immigrants in this country. What I am saying is that I think it's idiotic when we reach a point where we have more illegal immigrants than legal immigrants. And as a result of the illegal immigrants, we have other problems that are engendered. Now, I spent a lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire, and their major concern is the fact that we've had such an augmentation of drug trafficking and fentanyl. And it is a huge problem because now it's very easy for people to cross the border. They can almost do it at will. This is not something that's acceptable. And I do believe this is also an issue with Americans. But we have also a government now that I think is extremely corrupt. And the corruption, I think, is something we have to look at. As many of you know, I actually called on Biden to pardon Trump so that we stop using our entire legal system as a weaponizing tool. I was the first to do this. I did this on March 21st because I'd like to focus on major issues. If you say that this is a fair approach, then I ask you this. We have Biden, who clearly has a family that got about $10 million from various sources into the shell companies. They let that pass. We have Hunter Biden, who obviously became an extraordinary painter, probably at what, the age of 50? He is the next Picasso. He was selling these paintings at $1.4 million. So I I don't know. Uh, maybe I've got to start entering the art business because that to me seems to be pretty lucrative. Maybe we're in the wrong business here, Perry. <laughs> so I, I, I say we do have issues at hand. My major theme has always been on the economy. And I think it's about time that we have a CEO of a country. Now, I am the outsider of outsiders. I am the first to admit that obviously no one in Washington really wants an efficiency expert, in a quality efficiency expert over there in Washington because they get their power from the size of their budgets. And I think we can actually do a lot of things that are very favorable. I'm not sure that the Department of Education should even exist the way it is right now because you have only 8% of the money going to grades K through 12. And when you have a budget of $68 billion, 4,400 employees, and you're only sending about 8% of that money to the kid, to grades K through 12, there's a serious problem. I also think that we have to do something about the cost of education. Sure. My, my son, who's 19, he started Michigan State University this year. Now, in, in 1979, the cost for tuition was $25 a credit hour. If it had gone up at the rate of inflation, it would be $100 a credit hour, but it's not. It's $505 a credit hour. Now, this is absurd. Now, I, in my book, I talk about various examples. One of the examples I used is Harvard because in 1966, just after they passed the law where the government would guarantee all student loans, regardless of the amount, the overall cost to go to Harvard for room and board was $1,700 a year. Right now, it's $81,000 a year. If my son has children, let's say, gets married at 28, wants to have kids, by the time his kids will go there, the cost to go to one of these 
private universities out there will be about 1.8 million for four years. So I say that we place such a burden on our young kids with this extravagant tuition that we have to do something to contain it. And we have situations that have just gone awry because the cost of education has gone through the roof. And in my plan, I would actually do something to, similar to what I'm going to do with the government, that if the universities cannot do something to control, control the cost, we are not going to allow them to qualify for these guaranteed government loans. So they have to reduce their cost by 2%. If they do not reduce their cost by 2%, they do not qualify for government loans. And because we have to start getting this on track, it's completely absurd the way things are run right now. And whenever the government gets involved, things are always too expensive. So I say, let's trim the government. Let's keep the government out of our lives as much as we can. I don't want them telling us what to do. And I want us to have freedom because after all, this country was founded on the very concept of freedom. That's why the people came over here to begin with. They wanted freedom of religion. And we had an idea, an idea that was unlike any idea on earth because we were gonna have a country unlike any country in the history of the world, a country by the people for the people. And we were gonna found it on the very simple concept that we were entitled to inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And on these rights, we were gonna find a country that was gonna be unique. It was an experiment, but this experiment proved to be a major winner in the history of all humanity because we became literally one of the most amazing economies the world has ever known. And there has never been an upward mobile society like us. There will never be another America. We are it. And I wanna keep us the greatest country the world has ever known. And when people look at us, they look at Edison, they look at Ford, they look at Carnegie, Vanderbilt, and Elon Musk. And they say, wow, people have come here from all over the world. When they get to America, they ignite the world. And I say, let us keep us the greatest country the world has ever known. Perry, that was a really great closing right there. I do want to ask you real quick, just because our listenership is, uh, you know, we're an America First program here. Uh, we've been in operation for, you know, over five years going on six back end of the Trump administration. We saw a lot of things, especially some of the highlights that you brought, uh, you know, attention to as part of your policy platform, the government spending out of control, how much money was spent, not during just the last two and a half years under Joe Biden, but the previous four. I think one of the biggest driving factors there is how even when people like you come along, who is a voice of reason, who has a successful business model, who has a career of working a business plan, that runs things better, that makes you a more profitable business, that does the job that you're intended to do. In the United States, it always seems like we can't get too far along getting back on the right track without coming up with some kind of a major catastrophe to kind of throw gum in the works of the plans that are meant to keep this country running efficiently. Uh, you know, obviously things like the war in Ukraine, you highlighted that. I thought that was a, a great point. I mean, when you talk about all the military equipment that's been sent there already, it's a, it's probably around a quarter of a trillion dollars total just from the United States. And then you go back to things like the pandemic. So even when sensible business plans are there and in place and you have good leaders to implement them, 
the government will just tell you, well, it's the greatest catastrophe in the history of catastrophes. How can we not spend unlimited money on it? And then it kind of puts it on, you know, demonizing it in the press, demonizing members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. Oh, they don't want to save lives. Oh, they don't want to protect borders. Oh, they don't want to, you know, pay for other wars. We're going to wind up having wars here. What do you say or what can we do? Let's just say in a Perry Johnson administration, what would you do to kind of go and tell them that, listen, things are going to come and go, but we need to keep on track and we need to stick to the plan? Well, I write about it in my two cent plan. And as I said in my basic theme, we're going to change the way in which the government is run. I would give you a story about what happened when I got my first government contract. If you have time, you, I would really illustrates how the government is run. Uh, it turns out that Admiral Walker of the Navy wanted me to implement SPC, statistical process control in physical distribution. Now I had, they went to Ed Deming first and Dr. Deming said uh, he's too old for this. And he suggested that they go to me. And then they went to a guy by the name of Joe Duran. And I think he suggested the same thing. He suggested go to Perry Johnson. So I was actually out in San Diego to your naval base. And I implemented statistical process control out there. When they came out to see me, uh, at that time, I had one employee. I had a 110-square-foot office. And I didn't know what to do because they're going to send in this team of people. So I actually made this huge investment and got about, I think it was somewhere around 3,000, 2,500 square foot office. I bought some desks for $1,440 with dividers, chairs, and everything to fill the office. I bought it from advanced mortgage, used furniture. And I got some of my friends to act as employees because I didn't want to look like I had no employees when they came in. So the government comes in and they ask me, what is it going to cost to implement physical process control in our physical distribution center? Well, I did have uh, an IT operation. In fact, I was making software at the time as well. And I was doing training and I had no idea what it was going to cost because my biggest contract at the time had been with Microdot. I think I did all their fasteners for about $32,000, all the fastener companies. So I picked a number, knowing it's the government, I picked the biggest number I could possibly think of. <laughs> I said, well, uh, I don't know, it could be expensive, it could be $100,000. They says, oh, there's no way you're going to do it for only $100,000. I'm thinking, geez, well, better tell me about this. And then they, they asked, well, now, now that I've told you that, what's it going to be? And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe it could be $200,000. Oh, there's no way you're only going to do it for only $200,000. Well, I had no idea what I was getting into. I said, well, I better go out and see it. So I went out to see him. I ended up getting a contract for about $440,000. And uh, I thought, well, geez, I'm going to make a fortune on it. But I actually lost money on it. Why did <laughs> I lose money? Because we would have meetings scheduled, and then they would, I'd get all my people over there, and they'd cancel them. They'd have half the people missing from work half the time. It was a situation where the government was run totally differently. Right. Because they would constantly change management the way they worked is that every two years a new manager would come in because they uh, promote an admiral or it wouldn't be necessarily always an admiral uh it it could be a commander and they would be in charge you can't change the management every two years and expect to have an efficient organization 
because in the beginning they're gone whole, but the, the six months before they're ready to leave, they're looking at the new gig. What, where are they going to be going? And you have to have great management to have an organization do things in an optimal fashion. And you can't be changing it every two years. And that was the biggest problem that they had. I did implement SPC. We did get it going. But because of the way the government run, we really had a, uh, a situation where it cost us probably five times as much as it should have. Sure. Maybe six. But that is the way the government works. And they had to make sure they spent every penny in their budget by the end of the year. So by the end of September, the government had to make sure they were broke. Because if they didn't spend every penny in that budget, they would not get more money the next year. And that is the way our government is run. It has to change. I see what we do is we incentivize the people to save 2%. If they cut 2% of their budget, they get a bonus. And we're in a position where we're now incentivizing people to save instead of spend. And we're going to start running the government the way that you should run a business. Let us make sure we get better quality every day, better efficiency every day, and we maximize returns. Even in the VA hospitals, you have some VA hospitals that are exemplary, but they're not consistent. And I, I think the most important thing is that we have to make sure that our VAs get optimal care. They have to get great care. So I say, let's make sure that our veterans really get treated the way they should be treated. It makes me sick sometimes when I hear some of the stories. And I know that my parents were veterans, and maybe I'm influenced by that. But, you know, I give to the wounded warriors. I think it's a very important part of our existence. And we have to thank our veterans every day for the country that we have, because they keep the country safe. So I think we should reward those veterans also. Absolutely. And it's good to see that you have those stop gaps in there to where we can create additional spending, but we're not working into the budget. And most recently, like with the COVID pandemic, we're not sticking with pre-COVID numbers in a post-pandemic world. It just makes no sense to continue this out-of-control, reckless spending. And I think, uh, you know, the message that you're trying to portray there is one that will really resonate with people who are feeling it in the wallet other than, uh, you know, most of the blue-collar, hardworking, middle-class Americans right now. Perry, last question I want to ask you before we hit a real quick speed round, just a brief answer. Everybody who's running in the GOP primary that's not Donald Trump is going to get asked the Donald Trump question. We don't want a receipt verbally. We don't want, like, a got a moment here. You getting into this race, you knew that the former president, who was the president right before Joe Biden, is running in this election again. He has a enormous following, calls it America first. It doesn't mean that you know, his message is the only message that people are hearing in this because there are a lot of other components that go into what happens at the end of not only the presidential primary, but the eventual general election next year. Not going to ask you if you would think about things like vice president or cabinet positions. I just want to know when you got into this race and you knew that at some point the hard work that your team was going to do with your campaign, you believed in them to get you on the debate stage. They've done that. Even if Donald Trump doesn't show up at the first debate, you guys are already focused on hitting that mark for the second debate, which we know you will. Now, when you go to the straw polls at CPAC and see you finish second, Turning Point USA, see you finish third, and people understand 
that the message that you're bringing is important. How do you handle the question when people just kind of want to say, well, you know, this is Donald Trump's primary to lose, so I don't even know why you're running, uh, when the message that you're still trying to portray is a very important one to the American people? Well, you and I both know that nobody really knows who's going to win the nomination on the Republican side unless you are an incumbent, because it all is decided on the debate stage. And right now, most people don't even know me. The people that know me are the people in the field. So people, uh, obviously, a lot of owners of manufacturing companies, the major people involved in this business of quality and efficiency, they know me. But outside of that, I've actually gone out of my way to make sure nobody knows me because I didn't want to have any trouble. Right. I wouldn't even let any of my kids post a, a Facebook page. So I was making sure that I didn't have these issues. <laughs> but when you get on the debate stage, the people have an opportunity to actually see what you're like. And in the Republican race, most of the time, the person in the lead never gets the nomination. <laughs> The, in fact, the only time I can recall anybody being in the lead when they weren't an incumbent that actually got the nomination was Bush. I don't think it's ever happened other than that. And when you take a look at some of the presidents that we've had, you've never even heard of them. I never heard of Bill Clinton. He may have been the uh, governor of Arkansas, but I had never heard of him. Uh, we never heard of Obama before. He came out of nowhere. Right. Uh, we have guys like Carter. I didn't even know who Carter was. So when we had the last election, they laughed at Trump. In fact, I think Trump was in about the same position I was in terms of the percentage in the national voting because people thought that Bush was going to win that election. He had a brother who was president. He had a father who was president. He had $104 billion million in his fund. And he had the best connections on the planet with the best team on the planet. And everybody thought he was going to be the nominee until they got on the debate stage. And when we get on the debate stage and they get a chance to actually see your view, then you have the public exposed to other ideas and other candidates. And that's when you have a chance to see whether or not you're really going to make it. Because this election really starts, this nomination process really starts on the debate stage. Sure. That's when you really see what's going to happen. And as many of you know, there, I was obviously a great fan of President Trump. Uh, still like him. Uh, I still think that Biden should pardon him. I think this weaponizing system that we have of our legal system is just evil. Right. And it's anti-American. Uh, if you're going to do that, then you certainly ought to impeach President Biden because he has a lot going on there. So if you really think that's the case, then they should be jumping all over that. Bottom line is, that we are going to find out what really happens when we have our first debate on the 23rd. If you want to know what it's like to run for president, see my reality series. Go to perryjohnson.com slash backstage and see the past episodes, and you'll see the ups and downs. It wasn't that long ago that I thought, well, with our team, we came in with a poll and we said, man, we have no chance. And I, I looked at this, and then two days later, we get the caravan poll, and here we have 1.4% in the national polls, right? We had, uh, the week before last, we had three polls that came out. We had the Mammoth poll, and that was a blind poll. They didn't even have a name. You just had to list it. And I got over 1% in that poll. 
and there were six people that I think were at zero below me. Uh, but we then had the caravan poll. I moved up to 1.6% in that poll. And then they had another political poll where I was at 1%. So I had three days in a row where I was over 1%, back to back to back. And then you have to recognize that in this political race, you have your ups and downs, and you just have to go with the punches. In the meantime, it's a wild ride. And I think if you go and you watch that series, you'll see some of the ups and downs. Some things I probably should never say, but you get to see the real race and what goes on. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, definitely one that we're going to live link in our show description today. Perry, right before I let you go, we're going to play a quick speed round with you. Bringing it back old school here on Steak for Breakfast. We used to do top five, top ones. We're going for the presidential primary series. We're going to do top three, top ones. I'm going to ask you three questions. You just shoot me the quickest answer possible. Nothing too far outside of the range. Don't worry. It's not political either. This is for the rest of our listenership who have been with us since day one. First one, most influential person in your life? Uh, my dad. My dad and I were very close. And he told me that in America, anything is possible. You can be whatever you want. But whatever you do with your life, you are the person that judges your life uh, the most and will have the greatest impact on how you feel about your life is yourself. So make sure that you live a life that you're proud of. And the most important thing is that in the end, you feel that the world is a better place because of you. Mm. That's great. And uh, I could tell you what, Perry, your dad would be absolutely proud of you to see the job that you've been doing, especially after seeing the way that some of those polls at the live events have come out. And, uh, you know, the fact that you're going to be on national television in a few weeks at those debates. Next question. Campaign related. Greatest moment of this election cycle, the primary cycle right now in the GOP race so far. When I hit 40,000. <laughs> when I got forty thousand dollars, <laughs> hey, listen, we got to ask. You know, it, it's one of those things. I knew that's what you were going to say, and you guys are already on the fast track to the, the the next benchmark you need to make for the second debate. I think it says a lot and gives a credit to the team that you've uh, put around you and the job that you're doing out there on the campaign trail. All right, last question. This is a totally a you question. You can take it for whatever you want. It could be anything from family member to food. Uh, you know, you name it. One thing that Perry Johnson cannot live without. My family. Uh, I am very close. I have probably the most wonderful life in the world. Uh, I have the most wonderful wife on the planet, and I have three wonderful kids, and I'm very, very close to my children. The greatest joy in life is a joy you get from your kids, and there's nothing. We were talking about it earlier. There's nothing in this world that gives you the joy you get from your children. And they are really something that lights up my life every day. You lit it up here a little bit on Steak for Breakfast. Perry, we're going to live link in our show description today, your official campaign website, your behind-the-scenes documentary. But for anyone that's not following you and wants to get on the Perry Johnson train, hear more about the Two Cents plan, preview before the first presidential debate, and more importantly, be one of those individual donors to your campaign, What's your social media handle? PerryJohnson.com. If you go to PerryJohnson.com slash 
donate, you can donate. I don't care. Donate 50 cents or a dollar. We actually have a Big and Rich concert for all my donors that's going to be held in Iowa. It is on the 12th. Uh, it Big and Rich goes on about 7, 7.30. And it is right there by the fair. It's Waterworks Park. Uh, you can go to perryjohnson.com slash backstage to see the reality series. And we are on Newsmax. It is your time, Pacific time. It is six. It is nine o'clock Eastern time from nine to nine thirty Eastern time on Sundays. And uh, you'll see what it is like to run for president. And by the way, <laughs> the ups and downs are amazing. And so has been sitting down with you today. This is the businessman, entrepreneur, now great friend of Steak for Breakfast, Mr. Perry Johnson. Thanks for sitting down with us on the show today. And thank you. And enjoy life. Well, it was really great sitting down with Republican primary candidate Perry Johnson, getting to know his heart, hear a little bit about his backstory, his family. Obviously cares a lot about them both and cares a lot about this country. So we could only hope as we're rolling through this 2024 presidential primary series here on Steak for Breakfast, we'll continue to bring you the exclusive amazing content you won't hear anywhere else. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the now nearly 270 other editions of the show, you can find us across every downloadable podcasting platform. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify. Write reviews, five-star ratings, and then across all social media, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast podcast accounts, follow, and hit the notification bell. We want to thank presidential primary hopeful Perry Johnson for coming down with us today. He definitely helped make steaks great again. And don't worry, before you can even start to miss us, we'll be back with another outstanding episode of the show. On behalf of the Empire Pod team, I'm Roan. Thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>